Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. The scripture reading this week is Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, Genesis 3, 1 to 6, and Revelation 12, 9 to 12. Please turn to Ephesians 6 in your Bible or follow along on the sermon notes handout. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Genesis 3, 1-6 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Revelation 12, 9-12 And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's continue on, shall we, with our series that we just began last week on Ephesians 6 in the armor of God. In the early years of World War II, uh, Hitler's submarines patrolled the Atlantic Ocean in groups. And they called them wolf packs because like wolves, they came in a pack and then they would attack the allied British and American ships as they tried to cross from America over to Britain to bring the critical supplies that were needed uh, for the battle. But the German U-boats, as they were called, were sinking one allied ship after another. A thousand allied ships were sunk. And so this critical supply line from America over to Britain was almost being completely shut off. And the allied forces were being defeated and the war was entirely being lost at this point. U-boat commanders, the German U-boat commanders, communicated with their headquarters through wireless radio signals. And so the allies were able to intercept these radio signals, but they were all coded. And so even though they could intercept the, the signals, they could not break the codes. And so year after year, 
The war continued to be lost as the Allies struggled blindly against the German onslaught being defeated time and time again. A major turning point, though, happened on May 9th, 1941. A German submarine, a German German U-boat, was attacking a group of battleships when one of the lead battleships, through its sonar, discovered where the submarine was and began to drop depth charges. The depth charges succeeded. The submarine was greatly damaged, and so it came up to the surface in order for for everyone to abandon their posts and to flee the ship. The German U-boat commander thought that the submarine was going to sink. He assumed that the submarine would sink and those very important code books would sink with it. The battleship commanders on the surface were going to ram the submarine in order to fully destroy it, but then they noticed an opportunity for capture. And so rather than fully sink the submarine, they came up and they took over the submarine and the submarine did not sink. And this was a key turning point because as the battleship soldiers, commanders came onto the, uh, onto the submarine, they were able to grab those code books and to secretly take them away so that the German forces never knew that they had them. And then the tide of the war for the seas began to change. With such valuable information, the Allies were now not only able to intercept the radio signals, they could decode them. That doesn't mean that there wasn't any more battles But boy, does it make a big difference. If you know in advance what your enemy is going to do, there might still be a big battle. But to be forewarned is to be forearmed. If you know what's coming, even if it's bad, you can prepare for the fight that's coming. Now, last week when we introduced this series, we talked about how the Christian life and just life in general can be hard for many reasons. We want to be careful that we didn't say the devil's behind every bush and their spiritual powers behind absolutely everything. We want to be careful. The Bible says that the difficulties of this world are complex and multidimensional. However, what this series is teaching us, what Ephesians 6 is teaching us, is that there is such thing as an unseen realm. An unseen realm where not only God exists, but there are evil, powerful, supernatural forces. Paul identifies our adversary in verse 11 as the devil. He says in verse 12 that the devil is accompanied by what we might call his wolf pack. That is, other evil, supernatural beings who are bent on our destruction. And so we began the study last week looking at the identity of our enemy, understanding our enemy a little bit. And this week, I want to continue in that and even get more specific, and I want to draw your attention today to verse 11. In verse 11, we read, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the methods, the plans, the battle plans of the devil. The devil and his wolf pack, if we want to call them that, have schemes and plans, custom-made For you, for how human beings work, to go back to the submarine analogy, custom plans to be able to line up the ship of your life into the path of their torpedoes in order that day after day they can sink you into discouragement, sink you in your relationship with God every single day of your life. The schemes of the devil. And far too often we are unaware of the plans of the enemy and so Like the allied forces, we struggle blindly against the attacks. We get defeated time and time again. And yet what the Bible does for us is it opens up the enemy's code book, if you want to put it that way, for us. 
in order that we can understand some of these schemes. We can understand some of these plans in advance of any attacks that come our way. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so today what I want to do is to open up the enemy's code book and reveal two specific attacks that the enemy makes on all those who want to follow Christ and come into Christ's family, God's family. The two attacks are temptation and accusation. Temptation and accusation. Temptation, though, is really a torpedo that's designed to cripple your ship. Temptation in many ways is actually only the first attack meant to lead to the second more powerful attack, the second torpedo, which is accusation. Temptation is meant to lead towards accusation that's one kind of circle. Temptation, then accusation, back to temptation, then accusation. And once your ship has been crippled by the torpedo of temptation, when you fall into sin, then the more powerful torpedo of accusation is also sent toward the ship of your life. So if you don't understand the enemy's strategy on how he uses temptation and accusation, like the allies in the early part of the war, you'll be defeated time and time again. But conversely, and what I'm praying is going to happen this morning is, if you understand his attacks, then you, they're not, it's not like they're not going to come. They're still going to be the battles. But to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So this morning, let's look at these two strategic attacks, these two torpedoes, if you will, all right? So here's the first one. Strategic attack number one, I'll describe it like this. In temptation, Satan speaks as a helpful friend, as a helpful friend telling us that sin is the easy road to happiness, to fulfillment, the best way to live. A helpful friend. Big picture, before we really get into this, if we're going to understand all of this this morning correctly, we need to listen to some words of Jesus. Jesus, who, by the way, believed in the existence of the unseen realm and in the existence of the devil himself, said what, described for us what the devil is like in his character. He said the devil does not hold to the truth, and in John 8, 44, said these words, when he, the devil, lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is critical to understanding everything that we are going to talk about this morning. No matter how he attacks, he is always deceptive. He's always lying. His attacks are always done with lies and with deception. So let's talk about how he lies to us in the first torpedo, which is the torpedo of temptation. Let's go to the classic text on temptation in the Bible, which is Genesis chapter 3. Here, the serpent comes to Eve. He asks her a simple question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, I want you to notice something, first of all. When the serpent comes to Eve in the garden, he does not come in all the ways of your Hollywood mentalities, all the ways we think about the devil, which almost none of them have anything to do with what the Bible teaches. In other words, he doesn't come blasting into the garden in a ball of flames, draw a pentagram in the ground, blast some heavy metal music behind him, and just start launching in on like blood sacrifices. And I mean, that's all the Hollywood stuff. That's not it at all. It's a quiet conversation. 
let's just have a theological discussion, Eve. I just, I just got a question that I was just pondering on. I mean, it's just been in the back of my mind. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. A helpful friend comes in. Notice that the question, though, is not really seeking an answer at all. The question is designed to make Eve focus her attention in on the one restriction that God made. This is the genius of the serpent's temptation. You notice the serpent didn't begin by saying, first of all, Eve, let's just get the whole big picture clear here. I mean, God created you and gave you life. Clearly, he must care for you. Uh, He's given you this garden with thousands of other trees you can eat in. So, I mean, he's got the one restriction, but thousands of other trees. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, oh, and how blessed are you, Eve, to be able to walk and talk with your creator in the cool of the evening. And he's giving you this husband who, ladies, believe this or not, was a perfect husband, a great husband. I mean, you guys don't argue at all. You have this wonderful relationship. with. He doesn't do any of those things. He ignores all the blessings in her life, narrows her entire focus in on the one single restriction that God had provided to Eve and to her husband. He pulls her heart away from grateful worship and focuses on the rule. What is he trying to get Eve to question? He's trying to get her to question God's goodness and God's love for her and for her husband. Just like people today, Eve started then to think. The seed was planted in her mind. And she started to think, yeah, that's a good question. If God really loved me, if God was really good, Why would he give restrictions? Love doesn't restrict. That's negative stuff. Love is always empowering. Love always just lets you do what you want to do to be the true you and the authentic self that you are. Perhaps God's not as loving as I originally thought. And then why would he talk about if we would die if we eat it? God, if God ever judges, that's not a good loving God. So the seed has begun to be planted in her mind. And once Eve has been led down this track, here's what we read in verse 4. Now the devil gets more direct. Verse 4, next slide says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now he's directly contradicting God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I'm your friend, Eve. I'm here. God's not going to do that to you. Come on, Eve. This is not what's going to happen. We need to talk a little bit further about this, Eve. Once he's gotten her to believe that there is no danger in the act and that life would be better if she disobeyed God, Eve takes the fruit, she eats it, she gives some to Adam, who apparently was just standing there the whole time saying nothing, and he ate it as well. So let's think about this. Do you see Eve's strategy, or sorry, the serpent's strategy in trying to tempt Eve? In temptation, he comes as a friend who's only offering to help. In temptation, he comes speaking gently, speaking positively. Positively, it comes across very positive. Well, did God actually say you can't do this? Why is God so negative? I'm the friend here to help you. He speaks in a soft voice, Eve. I want you to be happy and to be fulfilled. I know maybe God said that, but it's not that big of a deal. Besides, God wouldn't really actually bring judgment. You won't actually die. God's a loving God when it comes to that kind of stuff. He'll forgive you of these things. It's not a big deal. Here's the key. 
And you know this in your own experience. In temptation, the idea is always that sin is trivial. It's always downplayed. It's not very serious. The helpful friend comes and make it sound like it's the easiest thing in the world and it's what will lead you to happiness and to fulfillment. But he is a liar and the father of lies. And what he is doing in that moment when all seems positive to us is he is fixing our eyes on the worm in order to conceal the hook. He is letting us smell the cheese and think about how good it will taste while not letting us see that it will spring the trap that will come down upon us. So let me just ask you to think more specifically, what are your areas, your specific areas of temptation? Can you hear the voice when you're in those moments that basically just say, this is, this is the way to be happy. This is the way I'll be fulfilled. Can you hear the voice where it makes sin sound just so easy? There won't be any consequences to this whatsoever. Can you hear the voice which says, even if it is sin, God's merciful. He'll forgive you anyways. It's not a big deal. That is the voice of the, quote, helpful friend who's coming along saying that this is the road to happiness. This is the soothing voice of our enemy who really is trying to steer our, the boats of our lives into the path of his torpedoes in order to sink us. That's temptation, the voice of the helpful friend. But remember, torpedo number one, temptation, it's really only meant to lead to the second more powerful torpedo what was the second one? Do you remember? Accusation. Accusation. So let's describe strategic attack number two now. In accusation, now everything flips. In accusation, Satan speaks as a tyrant. I was trying to find big language here because this is what it's going to feel like. A tyrant who tells us we are not worthy to draw near to God because of our sins. See the contrast between the first and the second? It's exactly what I'm trying to drive home. He comes now no longer as a helpful friend, but as a tyrant who wants to make us feel unworthy, unloved. How dare you? You cannot come near to God. The classic passage on this is Revelation chapter 12. Verse 10, we read this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? For the accuser of the bro our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now the word devil, the title devil means slanderer. Uh, the name, the word Satan means one who is an accuser or a prosecutor. Think of it as a, a prosecuting attorney. Once we give in to temptation and sin, he who spoke to us as a helpful friend suddenly flips and now he speaks to us as a tyrannical person. He who came as an angel of light, sound, looking all wonderful to us, now reveals his true character. He is a lion who seeks to devour us. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's that moment when that soothing voice suddenly is gone, telling you sin was no big deal. And once you've sinned, now it changes to accusation. Now the voice that you hear is something like, how could you possibly do such a thing? 
and you call yourself a Christian, Christians obey God. Christians follow Jesus. They know the word. You know the word. How could you possibly do that when you call yourself a Christian? Maybe you're not even a Christian at all. Do you know that voice? Now, let's not misunderstand this. we got to get this really clear. God has also given us a conscience. Our conscience can also condemn us when we do something wrong. God has also given us the Holy Spirit who convicts us when we have sinned. So there's nothing wrong with feeling conviction about sin, nothing wrong about realizing I have sinned against God. That's a very good thing. We've got to make a clear distinction here, though. What the devil does is he takes a proper grief over sin that leads to repentance and coming before God and saying, I'm sorry, forgive me of my sins, forgive me of my debts as I forgive my debtors, restore me back to you, help me to follow you. That's your conscience and that's the Holy Spirit. What the devil does is he takes all of that and he puts it into overdrive. So you can, you can know the distinction here between your own conscience or the, the voice of the Holy Spirit in your head when the devil's goal in accusation is to drive you away from God. The Holy Spirit's role is to convict you in order to draw you near to God in repentance. Your conscience has been given to you, God, given to you by God uh, like some sort of radar that's telling you, don't go there, don't go do this, and when you've done it, that wasn't the right thing to do at all. Your conscience is there screaming at you, but your conscience as well is used by the Holy Spirit to draw you near to God, not away from God. So if, if in, you're, you're sitting there saying to yourself, I, I, I can't come near God anymore, that's more the accusing voice coming in. He who once spoke about how little danger there is in sin now wants to terrify you with the danger that is in sin, making you think that there's no way God could accept you now. There's no way God could love you now. You knew better, and you did it anyways. That's the accuser's voice. He who said sin was so easy now just flips. Now he wants to make it impossible for you to get out of and to just drive you down into the ground with accusations. It's right here, I think, that Satan has so many believers defeated. See, if he can get you to feel, to believe, that because of your sin, God cannot accept you now, that you got to maybe take four days away from God because there's no way you could come back to him after what you did. If he can get you thinking all of these things, then what's going to happen? You're going to lose your joy. You will not have joy. And just think of any relationship if you have a relationship with anybody and you don't have joy in that relationship and it's just constantly tension, tension, you move away from one another. That's what you do, right? But when you're in true relationship with one another, there's a joy there and you move toward one another. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's your joy in who God is, your joy in his forgiveness, your joy in your adoption as a son or daughter of God. It's your joy in all these things that is your strength. So you can see then why accusation is such a powerful torpedo against our lives because if he can strip you of your joy and make you feel like you're always way on the outside, if, you can, if he can get you to think that God is always scowling at you, always frowning at you, Okay, then, then he, now he's stripped you of your joy and you're going to be defeated time and time again. Because who wants to be in a relationship with someone who's always scowling at you, frowning at you, cutting you down, who you feel you can't be near to? That is what accusation is designed to do, to make you think that God is always displeased with you. You're never good enough. Oh, God is holy. Don't you remember that? 
You can't draw near to this holy God after what you've done. It's all the voices of accusation. So, what are you going to do when the evil one fires these torpedoes of accusation against you day after day, seeking to sink you every single day? Sink your joy, sink your joy. Well, we've got to change the image probably back to Ephesians chapter 6. The answer is you've got to put on the armor that God provides for you, that God provides for you, and stand in his strength. Now, what does that mean? That's the question where I want to go with the rest of our time this morning, and then really the rest of this series is about how to put on the armor of God. But what I thought I would do today is take the rest of our time now, let's just do this, okay? So on this issue of accusation, let's put on the armor of God right now so that we will be able to stand against the the accusations of the prosecuting attorney, the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, okay? So this is, the, this is the case scenario. This is the let's do this together part, right? The first piece of armor that we are to put on, according to the Apostle Paul, is what he calls the belt of truth. So let's put on the belt of truth together right now. We'll explain this more in a few weeks what the belt of truth is, but for now, it's enough to simply say it means you've got to understand and know truth. After all, <laughs> His accusations are lies. His temptations are lies. He is the liar. He is a liar and the father of lies. So if you want to stand against the evil one, you have to know the truth. That's how you stand. That's what it means to put on the belt of truth. So let's get more specific. On this issue of accusations, what is the truth that we need to know to understand in order that we could stand against his accusations? Revelation 12 provides all we need. There's other places we could go. Let's go back to Revelation 12. It says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Oh, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So what truth from this scripture do we need to wrap around our waist in order to protect ourselves to stand against the devil's accusations? Well, let me give you this powerful truth that will withstand it. I'll put it like this, paraphrasing what we just read. Because of what Jesus has done in forgiving our sins, Satan has no more grounds for accusation. This is the truth of Revelation 12. Because of what Christ has done through his blood on the cross, Satan has no more grounds for accusation. I thought of a better way I probably could have put it on the PowerPoint this morning. The prosecuting attorney has been disbarred. That's what Revelation 12 wants to say to you. The prosecuting attorney has been disbarred. This is the truth you need to wrap around yourself to stand against the accusations of the evil one. In other words, here's the truth. I'll I'll explain it, but the truth is this. If you have come to Christ, if you belong to Christ, he has no more grounds of accusation against you. His accusations are actually lies, and you need to remind him of this fact. You need to remind yourself of this fact, the fact that the accuser has been thrown down. He's been hurled out of heaven. He has been disbarred. So that's the truth. So let's just make sure we understand. Okay, how did all that happen so we understand this truth? How was the prosecuting attorney defeated and disbarred? Revelation 12 says there's a war in heaven, and it gives us the heavenly perspective, and it gives us the earthly perspective. And from the earthly perspective, we read it all happened because of Jesus 
the male child who grows up to reign over all things. Here's what Revelation 12.5 says. She, being Mary, or the nation of Israel coming through Mary, gave birth to a male child, a reference to Jesus, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, a prophecy from the book of Psalms. Jesus is going to reign. But her child, the dragon is coming to eat the child, by the way, in Revelation 12 here, being Herod, trying to kill him. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. In this little phrase right here, Jesus' life, birth, life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, they're all collapsed into just one little phrase. In other words, the dragon came to kill Jesus, but Jesus was rescued away from his clutches, ascended up to the Father, and he reigns forever and ever. The point of all this is that it's through Jesus, through what he has done, that Satan has been disbarred. But here is the question now. Let's get really clear. What is it about Jesus' death that has disbarred the prosecuting attorney, the evil one, so that his accusations are lies against us? we got to get this really clear. And what Revelation 12 is picturing for us is that we are each, so to speak, in the throne room, or not the throne room, the courtroom of God himself. So there you are. You are the defendant. God is on his throne. He is the judge. The evil one is the prosecuting attorney. And he's got a case against you. He's got a giant book. And on every book, every single sin you have committed, page after page. And he just stands before God and he reads the book. On this date, here is the sin that was committed. And God, he might say, you're a just God. You're the one that said the soul that sins must die. You're the one that said that you're holy. And so I'm calling as prosecuting attorney for judgment, for punishment to be put upon this person. It's in the book, God. You're a just God. You must follow through. And at this point, if Christ is not in the room, if Christ is not a part of your life, the prosecuting attorney is correct. His case is airtight. <laughs> what one of us is going to say, nope, that didn't happen. I didn't do that. I got a, there's an extenuating circumstance there. Now you can't argue them all away. In other words, we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the prosecuting attorney has an airtight case against every single one of us. But what Revelation 12 teaches, what all the rest of Scripture is building up to and teaches is that God took that book of our sins, our crimes that we have committed, and he nailed it to the cross. What that means is that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and took the punishment that is due for every single one of those crimes. We have that phrase, you, do the, you did the crime, you have to do the time. Jesus took upon himself the time, so to speak, of all our crimes. Every single one of them paid for at the cross so that on every page of that book, you flip a page and stamped across it is paid in full. Flip a page, paid in full. Flip a page, paid in full. Every single page says this across it in red letters, the red letters of the blood of Christ for us. Paid in full. This is the truth. Now this is where it gets practical. This is how the saints overcome the accuser. They remind themselves, we remind ourselves, and we remind the prosecuting attorney of the blood that was spilled on our behalf. This is what Revelation 12 says. Here's the exact language. They have conquered him, the evil one, by the blood of the lamb. 
By the blood of the Lamb. So what is the truth then that we got to put on so we can stand against this attack? The truth is this, that Satan cannot stand and accuse us anymore because he has no grounds for accusation. All the grounds for accusation have been taken away. The crimes have been paid for. Punishment has been meted out. And God is indeed a just God. And no judge ever would punish the same sin twice, the same crime twice. If a judge did that, he would be disbarred. God is a just judge. He would never punish the same sin twice. So listen, if you're in Christ, all of your sins have been punished in him so that you don't have to be punished. And how can you be sure you won't be punished? Because God is a just God. He will never punish sin twice. If Christ took it, it's done, it's paid for, you need not worry again. In other words, the prosecuting attorney has no case. He has been disbarred. He keeps saying, objection. I'd like to point out another sin here. Overruled, overruled. Look at the page, look at the page. Paid in full. Objection, I'd like to point out. No, overruled. Look at the page. Paid in full. No matter how many objections he raises, every single one is overruled. He has been disbarred, the language of Revelation 12. He has been thrown down. He's been kicked out of the courtroom. And that's why all of heaven rejoices. Ah, but if you're thinking now, you're thinking to yourself, then how does he still accuse? Why do I still hear the accusing voice? Because he is a liar and the father of lies. So the way you stand against him is with the truth buckled around you where you say to him, okay, Satan, you're right. You are correct that I have sinned. Ah, but Christ has paid my sins for me. So your accusations that say, I am not worthy to come into God's presence, those accusations are lies. And I see right through them, and I stand against them, because Christ has forgiven my sins. Do you see that? How practical that is? Belt, buckle it around you. Belt, buckle the truth around you, and that's how you stand against the accusations of the evil one, by reminding him of the truth that he's been disbarred. He has no more case against you, and all his accusations are lies. We can actually stop there. That's probably enough, actually. I want to press into this even more. Let's put on another piece of armor. This is just doing the same thing from another angle. The next piece of armor is what Paul calls the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate being the the thing that guards the metal around your chest, that guards your most vital organs. So again, now here the image is put yourself back in one of those moments. You have sinned. You gave in to temptation. Now the evil one comes in with his sword of accusation. He is stabbing for the center of who you are, the core of your being. He's going for your heart. That's what accusation is going for. He's saying to you in accusatory words, you failed God. How could he accept you now? I mean, what's worse? I mean, you you knew better, and yet you went and did it anyways. How do you expect God to ever love you now? You are unrighteous. You are unclean after what you did. That's the sword coming at the vitals on you. Now, if you do not have the armor of God on, how are you going to stand against those accusations? I'll tell you how you should not try to stand. (laughs) should not stand by putting on a breastplate of your own righteousness. Because that kind of breastplate is made of paper. In other words, what I'm saying there is, if you try to stand up and say, but I'm a good person. No, no, there's extenuating circumstances. If you try to claim, 
It's my goodness and I can stand. I, I stand against all of your attacks. You're dead. Because you know he's right if he comes at you on those things. So how do you stand against the sword thrust to your heart of accusations? Well, you just begin by saying, I agree. Agree with the devil. You agree. You say, I have sinned. You are right. I am guilty and there is no excuse and I cannot justify my sin in any way. I do not deserve God's favor in any way. You are right, Satan prosecuting attorney. That's how you begin. But then you don't put on a breastplate of your own righteousness. No. You put on the breastplate that God gives to you. Remember, this is God's armor, not your armor. The armor that God gives to you. And what is that armor? It's the breastplate of God's righteousness, of Christ's righteousness. So now you put on that, and what what is protecting you now? Is it how good of a person you are? No. That's, That's flimsy. That's paper. Now you're standing there with Christ's perfect work over top of you. His perfect steel armor, which is impenetrable when it comes to any sword attacks because Christ was perfect. So you put on Christ's armor, and then you turn to the devil and you say, you're right about what I did, but this does not mean that God does not accept me. I don't claim that God accepts me on the basis of my good performance. I claim that he accepts me on the basis of Christ's Good performance. And I'm wearing his breastplate. I come on his righteousness. And listen, devil, God will accept me on the basis of what Christ has done. That's why we sang, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's all our hope. It's our only hope. And we're about to sing these words, some of the best words written in the last few decades. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the breastplate of righteousness. We can stop there. We've got truth buckled around us now. We've got breastplate. Let's just keep going a little longer, shall we? Because I think the accusations just keep coming. He doesn't let up. So we keep putting on armor. Maybe he gets knocked back by all of this. He withdraws a little bit. But from a little bit of a distance, he draws an arrow and he just fires it right at you. And that arrow is not going to be as powerful as some of his other attacks, but it's still going to be important. That arrow is an arrow that maybe says to you, okay, the devil might say, I accept it. I accept that you, you, God still loves you. I accept that you can draw near to him. But don't you think you're still kind of tainted? You're stained. How can you really, really walk with Christ when you're not clean? Okay, I'll grant you that you're not totally banished from his presence. Fine. But you're tainted and you're dirty. It's an arrow. It's coming at you. You need another piece of armor that God provides, and that piece of armor is what Paul calls the shield of faith. Faith, trust. You raise the shield when the the arrow is coming at you. What does that mean to do, practically speaking? It means trusting in things like the promises of God. So I'll give you a shield to raise in that moment. The shield that you should pick up and raise in that moment is the shield of 1 John 1.9, which says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just 
not only to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us, to make us clean from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us, not from most unrighteousness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you say, this is my shield. I'm going to trust when the promises of God say to confess sins. I've just confessed it, God. I've confessed it to you. So when the accuser's arrows come flying at you, you can say, I've confessed this sin before God. I have repented. I don't want to do this sin anymore. And this faith right here, or this verse right here says, if I confess it, he's faithful, he's just, and he will cleanse me of all unrighteousness. So listen, as Christians, we don't have to make any excuses we, we never try to justify ourselves. We just be perfectly honest. We take our lists of sins and failures. We kneel before God in repentance and we say, I'm sorry for these things. I want to follow you. Then we recall the promises for us. And in faith, we say, Jesus, thank you for this good news. I'm banking everything on 1 John 1, Ryan. I'm trusting everything in this, that you will cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness. And when you raise that shield of faith, the arrow of accusation hits it and just falls straight to the ground. We're still not done. You've, you've stood your ground now. But now you go on the offensive. You draw out what Paul calls the sword of the Spirit, which he says is the Word of God. So now you've got to ask yourself, what verses would I use in this moment as a sword to drive back the evil one so he has to, he has to run away because this sword is, is too powerful against him. What are some verses I could pull out from the word of God that I could use in this fight? Let me give you a broadsword. Romans 8.31. You draw this and you strike and you strike and you strike. If God is for us, Satan, who can be against us? God is for me. If God's for you, who can be against me? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? I dare you. Who's going to bring a charge against one of God's chosen ones? It is God who justified. Who is it that condemns? Who would dare to stand and condemn when God himself is the one who has justified? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Oh, that's a sword. And that sword will drive the accuser right out of your life when he comes to get you. You can say, Satan, the accusations you bring against me, there's the kernel of truth in them like there is in all lies. You're right that I've sinned. But all your accusations designed to drive me from God, to make me feel like I can never be accepted by him, that I'm never worthy to come into his presence, all of those accusations, those are lies. And you have no ground for accusation. Because my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Do you know this freedom? I fear that the adversary has gotten far too many true Christians living in what we might call a performance-based relationship with God. That is, you know that Christ has to forgive your sins so you can go to heaven. You got that part down. But you're living as if God's acceptance of you is based upon how well you're doing or not doing in the Christian life. You fear, I fear that many have got, the adversary has gotten many into thinking that God the Father is always frowning at you. You might be his child, but you're a second-class child 
because you're not as good as those other ones. That is not the good news of Christ. The gospel message is not, hear this, become better, do more, be more holy, and then you will eventually gain God's favor and love. That is, mark this, not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is good news. The message of Christianity is that God accepts us solely based upon what Christ has done. We are fully accepted, fully loved, and therefore we obey. We don't mix up the order. Everyone else, other religions, spiritual paths say, obey and the gods or God will accept you and love you. Christianity is the very opposite. God has accepted us in Christ and through what he has done, and therefore we obey. Always get that order right and live in the goodness of the first part. Because when you live in the goodness of the first part, your joy will be full. And when your joy is full, you're full of strength and you can stand your ground knowing that if God is for you, who could possibly be against you? And the answer to that is absolutely no one can be against you. You're welcomed into his family. You're loved by him. Now go out and obey him on that basis, not on the basis of trying to earn his favor. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've just even always assumed that the message of Christianity is do a lot of good things, try to obey God, and hopefully you'll get into heaven one day. Again, it's just not the message because that's not good news at all. That's hard. That's impossible. The message for you today is, on the one hand, you're more sinful than you ever imagined. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to justify yourself. Come before God and say, I need Christ to save me. And the good news is that is exactly what he does. You don't have to earn it. You have to work really hard to somehow attain it. He gives it freely to anyone who comes to him. So let's spend a moment in prayer right now, and I'll guide you in a prayer if you would like to do that. Pray something like this after me. Say, Father in heaven, I want a relationship with you. Please forgive me of my sins. Thank you for Christ who died in my place. Please forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And help me, Father, to live now my life for you. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.